Good evening, everyone. And um, it's such a great privilege to be here to share the Word of God with you and um, to continue with our series on the book of Nehemiah. I believe that um, there are speakers who have spoken um, to some of the issues from chapter 1 up to chapter 3, and I'm going to continue from chapter 4 with us today. And um, basically, I have tried to caption this remaining steadfast in the face of opposition. Remaining steadfast in the face of opposition. So I would want us to read from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. And that will be 487 of the Key Bible. So Nehemiah chapter 4, 487 of the Bible, page 487. I'm reading. When Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Would they restore their wall? Would they offer sacrifice? Would they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insult back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sin from your sight, for they have thrown insult in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of our laborers is given out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who had, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest point of the wall at, at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, 
the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight. The, remember the Lord is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. From that day on, half of Half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shield, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At the time... I also said to the people, Let every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night, so that they can serve as we guard by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when we went for water. Now, this is the passage that we are going to dwell on a bit more this evening um, and consider what God has been doing with these people. Now, we, in chapter 1, we realize that Nehemiah was informed about the state of Jerusalem. He inquired from people what is happening back home, and he was told that the walls of Jerusalem is broken down. And when he heard it, he he started weeping and, and, and praying to God, interceding that God would do something concerning the situation, the, the situation. But not only that, we realized that he also went ahead to make a, a request to the king in chapter 2, whereby the, the king realized that his countenance was not um, appealing. And so... The king asked him and then he made a request to that effect, telling him that the land of his ancestors um, laid in ruins and that was a cause of trouble for him. And so he requested for some items to be given to him to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So his request was granted and he was given permission to go. So he did that, he went back, he surveyed the land he tried to ascertain the enormity of the task at hand, first of all, before he actually went ahead to, you know, execute the task. Assembling all the people together, gave them the strategy that he wanted to use in implementing, you know, the rebuilding of the wall. And when he had done that, he started to implement his actions. And so that brings us to this particular passage in chapter 4 where we realize that when he started doing the work, in fact in chapter 3 we are told that the people were divided according to their clans 
and we're given specific roles to do. So assuming if they had measured the, the, the length of the wall, its breadth and everything, they divided the people, if you like, division of labor, so that there will be an efficient, uh, everybody will be efficient in the task that they have been assigned. So he did that. Fortunately for them, they were advancing with time. And we know that this whole construction work is going to take 52 days to be completed. But as they progressed, there were obstacles. And that is what we want to look at this evening. So I'm going to look at three broad areas. Probably you can go through this one. Um, I'm going to look at three broad themes. So first of all, I want to look at the nature of the opposition. What was the nature of the opposition that Nehemiah faced? And, and then I want to look at how Nehemiah responded to this opposition. And then finally we will look at what should be our response as believers in our contemporary context. These are the three broad themes that I want to consider as we look at this passage. Now to begin with, the nature of the opposition. How was it? Now we realize that if you look at the statement that was coming from Sambalat and Tobias, I mean, we can, we can deduce from the fact that they were using mockery and intimidation. So, if you look at Nehemiah, and I want you to note that the opposition to Nehemiah did not begin in chapter 4. It, it started when he was given the request, when the king granted his request and gave him materials. So, in chapter 2, verse 10, we find that there was opposition there because that was where we will find Sambalat and Tobias introduced for the first time, you know. And they didn't relent in their effort. In chapter 2, verse 19 to 20, we find that same um, thing being done. So I just, I just want to go back to chapter 2 and draw our attention to the first instance where Sambalat and Tobias appeared on the scene. He said, When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officially heard um, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. They were disturbed that someone had come to So I just want you to take note of that statement. And then let's go to um, verse twenty. In verse, in verse 19 to 20, we find something here. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebuilding against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven would give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So, this is the beginning. Of course, they, were, they had doubts whether they were going to succeed in, their, in this rebuilding enterprise from the beginning. But fortunately, they realized that they were determined. They were very determined and they weren't going to give up. And so when they realized that indeed the work was advancing to their displeasure, they came back with these attacks. And this time round, they resorted to intimidation and mockery. And so this is what he said. Um, I just want to go back to chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. 
He said that when Sambalat heard that we, are re- we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates, the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Now notice his, the choice of words that he uses because he, he, he sees them as weaklings. What are those feeble Jews doing? Would they restore their wall? Would they offer sacrifice? Would they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Now, notice that this time round, in the first, when we went to chapter 2, when he opposed them, it was just Sambalat and Tobias. But here, he comes with other people. And this is where we can see signs of intimidation here. He didn't come alone. He came with his associates and an army. Now the presence of an army in itself is intimidating because you would, you would think that they were just rebuilding a wall you know, for Jerusalem. And then it looks like these people are telling you that we are ready to fight you. We are, we are, going to, you know, we are, we are not going to allow you to do this. And he wasn't the only person. He came with other people. And you find this strategy being used in the Old Testament. You know, it was more like verbal confrontation, which also psychologically weakens the defenses of the people, right? And we find a classic example where you go to Second Chronicles 32, verse 1 to 19, that Hezekiah and, and Sennacherib, right? The battle between them. He brings an emissary who comes to defy the, the God of Israel, and he says all manner of things. I mean, to an extent that even sometimes the king will say that, speak in a different language so that they wouldn't understand because he doesn't want the people to be intimidated. And, and he speaks Hebrew so that the people will hear exactly what he's saying, his threats. And we see that same strategy being employed here by, by Sambalat and, and his associates. So what he's trying to do is that he's, he's trying to weaken the morale of, of, of the workers who are building and he, brought, he brings an army and the fact that they see an army that in itself is threatening enough you know and he raises critical issues you know if you like serious political issues are they building a war against the king now remember that they had come under the domination of, of a foreign nation so by building a defense wall it's like you are trying to say that we are going to assert our sovereignty or our freedom the kind because you are fortifying yourself against and that wasn't the intention but they try to you know bring out these issues now the next thing that we see as far as um, the, the strategy he tries to use um, is concerned the nature of the opposition is that he questions the competency and skill of the labor force you know what he does is that when we when we look at when we go further to um, verse 7 he says that but when Sambalat, Tobiah the Arabs, the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard about the repairs to Jerusalem's wall they had gone ahead they have heard about the repairs to Jerusalem's wall and had gone ahead that the gaps were being closed they were very angry they all plotted against them but Sorry, um, the scripture I will want to read rather is from 
from verse 3, sorry, the, the statement made by Tobias. He said that the Ammonite who was at, who was at his side said, what, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down the wall of stones, right? So he was questioning the competency and the skill of these people. He was calling the quality of what they are doing in doubt. He was, you, you know, he was trying to say that even what you have done is not strong enough. Even if a fox go, goes over it, it will collapse right now. It is not as, as strong as you think it is. You know, so he, he's just trying to use this strategy to, to cast doubt in their mind whether what they are doing is really worth it. And so he goes on to say all manner of things. He, he uses a fox as an illustration to, to show that this thing that you are doing is not going to work. But it is interesting that these people would not, you know, relent in, 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 in their effort. And finally, when they realize that, um, I mean, verbally attacking them and trying to psychologically demoralize them was not going to work. They devised a, a third strategy. And the third strategy was that we are going to plot to kill them. Right? So they plotted to fight and cause confusion amongst the Israelites. And that is the verse I want to highlight. And that is from verse 7 to 8. It says that, but when Tobiah, when Sambalat, Tobiah the Arab, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. They all plotted. Now, when you look at the combination of people and you are looking at them in terms of their geographic location, you could see that the Israelites were actually surrounded from the north, the east, the west, and the south. These were, these were the places where these guys were kind of, and this time they were joining forces. You see, they have tried to use verbal abuse. It didn't work. They have resorted to intimidation and mockery. That didn't work. Now they thought that the only efficient way to destroy them is to plot to kill them. The enemy of our soul never gives up. You know, constantly he devises strategies and means to attack. In, in Matthew, in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 4, you realize Jesus' temptation. You know, the enemy tempted him in every way. He used food, he used everything that he could to tempt him. But Jesus did not succumb to the temptation of the enemy. And the scriptures say that he left him for an opportune time. So that wasn't the only time Jesus was tempted. So the enemy will keep on devising strategies to oppose, you know, our faith in God. But they did not relent. But one of the things I want you to know is, um, to note, is how Nehemiah responded to all this. In the face of fierce opposition, how do we respond? How do we respond in the face of fierce opposition? The first thing to note is that he turned to God in prayer. Of course, part of his um, prayer we may term as um, imprecatory prayer, right? The way he prayed. And you could find that also in the Psalms. But 
if assuming that we didn't have the New Testament and we were living in their time, you know, we wouldn't, I, I think that we, we, we don't have to criticize them or criticize them too quickly. Because that, sometimes that is our natural inclination when, when we are faced with fierce opposition. We wish that people would do what? Would die even in the process. Like God should do something for them to know that. Indeed, he's a God. And probably if, if they die in the process, you know, that, 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 that will serve a good cause. And so we find that in, and, and, and it is interesting to note that Nehemiah has consistently been praying. Every time there is something he has to do, he goes to God first before he acts. So, in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5 to 11, we realize that as soon as he heard about the walls that have been broken down, he turned to prayer. In chapter 2, verse 4, he prayed. In chapter 4, verse 4 and 9, and then 6, verse 9, he constantly went to God in prayer. But in chapter 4, verse 4, this is what he says. He said, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insult in the face of the builders. You know, so he turned to God in prayer, but of course he was, he was praying about the fact that actually if this God, this work that they are doing, if you like, is God-ordained, is God-given. Because he prayed to God, God gave him the ideas, the plan, what he should do, favored him in front, before the king, and he went ahead to do it, and now he's being attacked. And so he prays this specific prayer concerning um, Sambalat and Tobiah. But the amazing thing, aside his prayer, is that he had faith in God. He had faith in God that no matter what was going on, God is able to handle the situation. Absolute faith in God. The first thing he did was to go back to God and pray concerning the situation. Sometimes in the face of fierce opposition, where do we turn to? Probably he could have gone back to the king and asked for some military support. You know, that would have been feasible for him to do and he would have, he would have I believe that since the, he, he was in the good books of the king, he would have favored him but he didn't do that he didn't resort to that, he knew that there is someone who has ultimate power and solution to all this in verse 8 in verse, um, if you look at verse 2 chapter 2 verse 8, there is something that he does there he says that and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will, give, he will give me timber to make beams for the gate of the citadel by the temple, for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Now we realize that even before he actually made the request, he prayed, first of all, to God concerning it. And he made a request to that effect. And in verse 20, this is what he says. I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or 
historic right to it. There is this confidence that Nehemiah has in God. He has this unwavering faith about what God is able to do. And so consistently he kept referring to the fact that God is able to do this for us. He will give us success. And when, once we start rebuilding, no one is going to stop us. In chapter, in chapter 4, verse 14, he says that after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families and your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. So consistently he kept, you know, his faith in God was his sure foundation that gave him support to continue with this particular endeavor of rebuilding the temple. But finally, what he did also was that he gave a helping hand and encouragement to the weaker brethren. Now we learn from chapter 4, verse 10 to 14, that some of the Jews in Judah were having a hard time continuing with the project. You know, the work, the enormity of the tax was too much for them, and they kept complaining. And you could actually tell from, from, from the narrative that it was an urgent issue, because the scripture says that ten times they received message that the work was becoming difficult for them to handle. Ten times. So what did he do? He went there and he offered help. He decided to reorganize them. Some men should be at the, having, having uh, ammunition, spears and bows and arrows to keep watch while the others work. You know, and that was how he, 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 he solved the situation. And so he says um, in, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 10 to 14, he says that, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the labor is given out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Verse 12, Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some people behind the lowest point of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your home. You know, so he went there, he repositioned them and devised a new strategy. But beyond that, he gave them a word of encouragement. He said, remember the Lord is great and awesome. He is able to fight on our behalf. So be encouraged by the fact that God is going to fight on your behalf and go ahead. If there is the need for you to fight, fight for your families, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters and your homes. So he, he gave them that encouragement. He gave them that encouragement. And finally, they were battle ready. They knew that the enemy is going to come by all means. He was going to attack as to when the enemy will attack. They didn't know. But what he did was that 
he made them ready for battle. So though they were working, they had one arm strapped to their sword and they were using the other hand to work. So that at any time, when the enemy attacks, you have your ammunition with you and you can defend yourself. Not only that, he also realized that they were separated from each other. So he decided that, look, let's have someone who will sound the alarm. So they can have a trumpeter, right? Ready to sound. And said, whenever you hear the sound, just rally together and move towards that place. Because that is the sound of battle. So even though they were working, rebuilding, they knew that the enemy was going to attack. So they had prepared for battle. They were battle ready for this particular task. And so in chapter 4, verse 15 to 23, we hear that when our God, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the war, each to our work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shield, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he wept. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. So he was, he was very strategic in, in, in his approach to dealing with the opposition itself. But it's interesting how he handled this whole situation. And if you look at what Nehemiah did, how would that be in our context as believers? How should we respond to opposition in our pluralist world? where we are contending with different worldviews, where people have various objections to Christianity. And they are raising tough questions. And sometimes the questions seem legitimate. You know? And, and, and they are raising questions against the church. They are, they, are, they are looking at how the church is divided, various denominations coming up, and they are raising questions. And they are challenging the status quo. You know, what must we do as believers? How do we respond to all these things? I think that if we look at the life of Nehemiah and how he dealt with the situation, the first thing for me is that as believers we need to pray. You see, the scriptures makes it clear. It says that for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty true God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now, we need to understand some of these dynamics. You know, how, how do we deal with some of these issues? We win the battle on our, on our knees before we even go out there to engage. Because it is at the point of prayer where God reveals things to us. Where God speaks to us. Where God communicates things to us. It is only when we go on our knees in prayer that we are able to raise a defense against the enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, it says that for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness and wickedness in high places. You know, but how do we engage with them? The good news is that when Christ Jesus went to the cross, 
the scriptures are clear that he made a public spectacle of the enemy. Having disarmed the enemy of his powers, he made a public spectacle of them. And he blotted out every handwritten code of accusation against us. So first of all, we need to engage. We need to understand that this is not just a physical battle. It is a spiritual warfare. And the only way you deal with spiritual battles is to go to God in prayer. And to open up to him and cry our heart out and ask him to intervene in the situation. Now when we pray to God, it doesn't end there. Now remember that there are certain assurances of scripture that Jesus gives us. Even in, in John chapter 16 verse 23, he says that I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome. The Christian message is countercultural. You know, people would, de- people would definitely resist it. I don't know, but for some reason, I find that the Christian message is so radical such that sometimes the opposition that we face, it is, it is, it is, it is not because the message of the gospel is not true, but it challenges people's opinion and worldviews. And it shakes its foundation to the core. And for me, one of, one of the things that makes me believe and have confidence in the Christian faith is that I have seen no other worldview that has put, been put to the test like Christianity. There has been none. Not even Islam. People can take the Bible and treat it as any literature and tear it apart and critique it anyhow and still it stands the test of time. You can't do that with the Quran. You dare not. People have questioned the authenticity of the scriptures, whether they were truly the words of Jesus, whether he said them or not. They have done every historical and archaeological excavation to confirm whether it is true. They have questioned the very text of the Bible, and yet the evidence abounds. And yet the evidence abounds. But still there is opposition. And we need to go to God in prayer. That is where we begin from. Nehemiah consistently went to God in prayer. But beyond that, what bears testimony to our Christian witness is that the Christian life must be lived out for everyone to see. What we profess must be seen in our daily lives, how we interact with people. It has to be evident. Because we are, people are looking at us. Our lives are the epistles that people read. They are looking consistently at us. Whether we really believe what we profess. They are consistently looking at us. And the powerful message that any Christian can send across is the love of Christ that is lived in the public space and in the marketplace of ideas, where ideas, your, your Christian values are challenged. They are looking at every move you make, every statement you, you say. They are, they are seeing, people can actually see through your life. And your life can be a living testimony, you know, to many. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19 to 21, the scripture says that, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But overcome evil with good. It is amazing. When people see how we live our Christian lives, even in the public arena, it shocks every, everyone. And it is okay for people to know your past, but it is okay for them to also see that indeed they knew you to be this individual, but now there's a transformed life which is evident for everyone to see. When you look at Paul, for example, when he had his um, Damascus road encounter, when his sight was restored, immediately he started proclaiming the gospel. Now those who heard him for the first time started questioning, was this not the one who was fighting against people who's, who preached about this same name? And he is preaching about the name. And people were amazed. And when they saw how he preached and, and, and spoke about the gospel, many believed. The transformed life must be evident for all to see. You must live it out. You must live it out for all to see. And finally, if we are going to engage in our pluralistic world and contend with ideas and worldviews and whatever, we need to engage with opposing worldviews. We need to engage with opposing world. In First Peter chapter three, verse fifteen to sixteen, it says, "But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander." You must engage. People are asking questions. They are asking questions. Did Christ really die on the cross? You know, is the atonement not a cosmic child abuse? They are asking questions. They are genuine. But many of us shy away from it because we think that we don't have answers. But if we examine this passage carefully, if you are truly, if you will truly be able to defend the message of Christ, First of all, you yourself must have a personal relationship with him. In other versions, it says that, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. You can't make a defense for something that you have doubt about. You cannot. When they ask you questions, you can't defend it. You won't be able to. In fact, they will see through your answers that you are not genuine, you are not honest about it. There is a way that people are able to de- detect when you are not being honest about things. They will know it. That you don't have any convictions about the things that you are talking about. But he says that always prepare to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So people can ask you questions about Christianity in in a very antagonistic manner. But we don't shy away from it. We must give a response with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience. 
so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. People are looking at us. Our body language matters a lot in our response to people who oppose us. But it also means that we have to be abreast of the issues. If you are going to give a response to everyone who asks ask for the reason for the hope that we have, we have to be abreast of the issues. What are the questions people are asking about Christianity? What are the objections? How do we respond to them? And that will also mean that we must know the word of God. You know? Because you can't do that in isolation. When they are questioning the authenticity of the scriptures, how do you defend it? You should, you should, you should have information. You should, you, should, you should know all these things and, and work at it. When you, when you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 it says that for Ezra had devoted himself to study and to, to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. We have to be equipped. We need to learn to engage different worldviews. And I believe that if our our Christian faith would make an impact what are some of the considerations? We would definitely have opposition. That's one we have to we have to have it at the back of our mind. The world would definitely oppose us. But are we ready to live our Christian faith out? Are we ready to engage with the different worldviews that may question or have objections about our Christian faith? Are we ready to go on our knees and pray that God would turn the situation around? These are questions I want you to think about as we end with a prayer. Shall we pray? Our Lord and Master Jesus, we live in a time where there are so many objections to the Christian faith. So many. And There are many false gospels being preached also out there. But we know that God you are able to do all things. We ask Spirit Divine that you will give us boldness to proclaim the gospel. Even where people disagree with us we ask that Father give us that humility and calmness of spirit to be able to stand on our feet to engage with these different worldviews that contend with the true faith. Help us, Lord, to minister to others that they will come to your saving knowledge. Spirit divine, on our own we can do nothing. But we ask that you would help us. You will guide us. You will equip us to be able to be effective ambassadors of Christ wherever we find ourselves. That in the face of opposition you will be glorified. That you will be exalted. That Christ will be seen in us. We thank you Lord. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen.